your Bibles to open that up and follow along. We're going to look in Romans and over another passage and over in John. Uh, and um, so grab your Bibles and open it to Romans 13 this morning. Romans chapter 13 is where we're going to uh, get into the Word this morning. Um, starting a new sermon series this morning about um, a challenging subject, church and state. And I want to say something as we begin that kind of echoes a little bit. Uh, Judy and I didn't coordinate this, but it echoes uh, what, uh, what Judy just said. Um, so this sermon series, especially today's sermon and next week's sermon, are going to have some challenging uh, teaching in it. Um, we, we all like the sermons that, that say things that we can easily say amen to. We're not as fond of the sermons that step on our toes and say things that uh, we don't like. And so, just as a reminder, I've said this kind of, of a thing before, but I'll go ahead and say it again before we get into this morning's sermon and then uh, next week. If As you're listening to the sermon this morning and there's challenging teaching and you're like, oh, I don't really like what Jim just said there, um, two things. Number one, if you listen to it and you're like, I disagree with the way Jim interpreted that passage. I, I think he interpreted that incorrectly. And I think the passage really says something else. Then you should absolutely holler at me today, email me, call me. We'll talk about that and try to figure out what the passage really says because there are times where, where I make mistakes and, and I fully acknowledge that. If on the other hand, if you're listening to the sermon this morning or next week or any of them in this series and you're like, okay, what Jim said is what the passage said, but I just don't like what the passage said, then don't call me because your problem isn't with the messenger, your problem is with the author. Um, and these are challenging passages we're going to get into. And I'll go ahead and say up front, as I was preparing these messages, uh, especially this morning, some of the stuff it says in here, I don't like. I, I wish the Bible said something else, because what it gives us is really challenging and difficult to do. But we are to obey the Word of God, both the parts that we like and the parts that we don't like. And so as we get into this passage this morning, it's going to challenge you. Uh, and as we get over into First Peter, it's going to challenge you. But uh, we need to understand that, um, that Paul uh, gave us his teaching, Peter gave us his teaching for a reason. We need to understand what exactly they were trying to get at. So I'm in Romans chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 as we get started uh, this morning. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your sermon outline. Let's start uh, there uh, with uh, the first of our points this morning. And we want to get the overarching point that the Bible says here about 
the relationship between the Christian and government. And the big point is this. We are to submit to the governing authorities. We are to submit to the governing authorities. Uh, let's go ahead and work our way down through first uh, or through Romans uh, chapter 13 here, and then we'll get over uh, into the other parallel passage in just a moment. So we just read this passage. If you were paying any attention at all, there were a number of places down through here where we were like, I don't know, I don't like that, I don't like that. But as I said a moment ago, this is the teaching of, uh, of the Bible, and so we need to understand what exactly is going on here. So let's just briefly unpack this uh, verse by verse. The, the overarching point uh, that uh, is said both at the end of this passage and at the beginning of this passage is that we are to submit to the governing authorities. As Christians, we are to be respectful uh, of the governing authorities. Verse 1 says, Let everyone be subject, and of course he's preaching to the church here, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The, the biggest point that he's making here is when we think about government, even though we all know that the government isn't everything that we wish it was, gover government is a lot better than living in a place where there's anarchy and where it's every man for himself. You might think back to the Old West uh, back in frontier days where there was no law and and you were on your own, and think about how horrible that situation was, as opposed to, even as imperfect as, as the government is, having somebody in charge so there is some semblance of order. Verse 2, Consequently, those who rebel, those, I'm sorry, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, this doesn't mean that God approves of every government around the world as being a good government, that, that for instance, the, the worst example today would be the government in North Korea. He's not saying, oh, well, you know, I'm a big fan of him. I think he does a good job. What he's saying here is that, again, the idea of there being order and the idea of there being um, a government to, to watch over everybody um, is something that is built into the way that God has created the world. And so God has instituted the idea of government so that we don't have anarchy. Verse 3, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And that is the general rule of the way that things work. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For, uh, for the, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now again, the idea of him being God's servant there goes back to the idea of God having instituted government so that we don't have anarchy. And so in that sense, government is God's servant. It's not saying that everything that every politician or every president or every premier or every prime minister does is perfectly God's will. It's saying that God has established the government in order that, that we might be able to have that order. Um, going down to verse or the rest of verse 4 there. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. So that gives us the first reason. We'll talk about the second in, the, in a moment. The first reason that we should obey government, which is that uh, it has the, the power to punish us if we do that which is wrong. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 5, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, we talked about that reason a moment ago, but also as a matter of conscience. As Christians, as a matter of conscience, our general, rule, our general stance is to be that we are submitting to the governing authorities. But I want you to notice there at the beginning of verse uh, 5, and we'll get into this over in 1 Peter in just a minute, it has that word that we don't like, and we really don't like it in any context. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the governing authorities. 
I said a moment ago, there are parts of this passage I don't like. And that's one of those parts. I, I, I don't like in just about any context, even though the Bible tells us in a number of different ways that we are to submit to our brothers and sisters in Christ and other things, the idea of submitting. We instead, we like the idea of our rights and we like the idea of being able to stand up for what we, we have and be able to have the power. And yet here we are told that we are to submit to the governing authorities. Flipping over to 1 Peter chapter 2, there's a similar passage, and even though there's a lot of, of repetition, I want to go there because it's, it's actually important that we note where they are uh, parallel. So 1 Peter chapter 2, just a few verses, verse 13 uh, down uh, through verse 16. Well, we'll read verse 17 too. Uh, verse 13 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. So again there we see a lot of the same themes. We are to submit to the governing authorities, and he is the one that holds the sword for those who do wrong. Verse 15, For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. He's talking here to the church and just saying that there are those who would, back in that day especially, but today as well, who would badmouth the church and we are to live orderly lives um, in order uh, to silence the ignorant talk about the church. Verse 16, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So let's note a couple things uh, here. Number one is there's a remarkable... Um, parallel, there's a, a remarkable amount of overlap between what Paul says in that first passage and what Peter says in the second passage. So we have two different passages there, and yet we have almost the exact same thing being said about our relationship to the government. So we need to acknowledge the, the overlap there and the fact that this is the consistent teaching of the Scripture. The second thing is that a moment ago is again, like here in First Peter, just like over in, in uh, Romans, we don't like what it says. We don't like the idea that we are to submit to the government because that's something that, that goes against the way that we often feel about the way that things should be. And yet the consistent teaching here in both of these passages is that we are to do that. Um, it's important for us to understand, and this goes back to something that, that Judy said a moment ago too. Um, we, we have these moments when the Bible says something that we don't like. And, and this is one of those moments. Okay, I, I heard the, the Romans passage, I heard the First Peter passage, and I don't like what it says. And it's easy for us in those moments, and a lot of Christians do this. They're, they're like, I'm going to take the parts of the Bible I like, and I'm going to lay aside the rest of it. And as Christians, we are called to believe all the Bible. Not the parts that we like, but all the Bible. When Jesus says that I am to forgive my enemies, and I say, I, I, don't, I don't feel like that. I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. The response of the Bible is, I don't care about your feelings. I told you to do this. You should do it. When we are told, uh, let's talk about materialism for a second, that the, the sum of a person's life does not consist in the amount of, uh, of money that they have or the amount of possessions that they have. Everything that I see around me as an American points in another direction, and yet the fact that I don't feel like living that way doesn't make any difference. I am to live that way anyway. And as we look at these teachings, uh, of what the Bible has to say about this, whether we like it or not, this is the teaching of the Scripture, and we are to understand it, and we are to follow it. And so the question becomes, as you look at, 
at these passages, um, and we try to understand it, the, the first kind of thing that comes to our mind is, well, what about when the government isn't doing right? That, that would be fine if the government was doing everything good. What about when the government isn't doing what is right? How should I respond in that moment? That's our second point. And we want to talk about four passages that, uh, that point to what the Bible has to say about that. So, what about when the government isn't doing right? The second point is this. The church may be called to civil disobedience. The church may be called to civil disobedience, but it is not called to violent revolution. The church may be called to civil disobedience, but it is not called to violent revolution. So let's talk about the attitude of the church in four passages that bring this out. So, first of all, let me define civil disobedience. Um, the idea of civil disobedience is the idea that I recognize that the government has asked me to do something and I feel that it's wrong, and so I choose to not obey that, knowing that there is a punishment that the government is going to put on me, and I accept that as being the consequence of not doing what the government said I should do. And so I, I, do, I do not obey the government, but I accept the punishment that they put on me. Obviously, the most prominent example of this would be the civil rights movement. And Dr. King promoted, because he was a Christian, he promoted civil disobedience. They believed that those laws were unjust, and so they protested. They accepted the fact that they were going to be imprisoned, but they believed that in doing that, they would be able to, um, uh, to further their cause and to be able to bring about what is right. What Dr. King did is, uh, is in opposition to, let's use a different example, let's talk about Malcolm X for a second. So Malcolm X was a Muslim, and he had a different belief there. Rather than the belief of civil disobedience, he had the belief of, what was it? By any means necessary. And so he believed that violence was fully justified, and, and therefore he was willing to pursue violence in the overthrow of the government because he believed, as a Muslim, that that was an acceptable thing. As a Christian, there is no example. We're going to get into four examples here in a second. As a Christian, there is no biblical example of the church being called to pursue violent overthrow of the government. None. Period. Let's talk about these four examples. Number one, Romans, or Acts chapter 4. So in Acts chapter 4, we have uh, Peter and, and John. They've preached the gospel. Uh, the authorities uh, come and say, you know, we're going to put you in prison if you keep doing this. And they refuse to obey the authorities because they believe that they are to preach the gospel of Christ. And so they continue to preach the gospel of Christ. They are in prison. And there's a famous line there, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, you can go in and read the passage yourself later. But essentially what they say is, we must obey God rather than men. And so they continue to preach the gospel, but notice they're, they're not advocating violent overthrow, but rather they're committing civil disobedience. They know they're going to throw them in prison, but they accept that because they have to continue to do what God has called them to do. And so... Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, and really throughout the whole uh, book of Acts, we'll get into that more later, um, they commit civil disobedience because they need to do, the government has asked them to do that which is wrong. Don't preach the gospel anymore. And so they pursue civil disobedience, not violent revolution, in order to continue to do what is right. So that's Acts chapter 4. Uh, Daniel chapter 1. We have uh, Daniel. Uh, he has been brought all the way to Babylon. Uh, he is part of a group that's going to be trained up to be government leaders in Babylon. And as part of that training, they are to be given, and this is a very mild example, but it's worth mentioning, uh, they're to be given certain foods. 
And the problem for Daniel is those foods, uh, which are perfectly acceptable to the Babylonians, go against the Hebrew dietary laws. And he as a Hebrew, as a Jewish person, does not want to eat those. And so he does not pursue the violent overthrow of the Babylonian government. Instead, what he does is he goes to his supervisor. And he says, I don't want to eat these because it's going to cause me to violate uh, my conscience. And so I would prefer, allow me to eat vegetables and, and to drink water and to avoid these. His supervisor is a little uneasy, but he finally talks him into it. And after a period of time when he's done that, he's actually looking healthier uh, than the guys that were eating the other food. And so he is able to continue to, to eat those things which don't break the Hebrew dietary laws. Again, he was willing to pursue civil disobedience there. He didn't have to. He went and asked his supervisor, was able to work that out so that he, was, he didn't have to violate his conscience, but he did so in a way where uh, he was pursuing that as potentially civil disobedience, but instead he was able to work it out and didn't have to. A more dramatic example, third example, uh, from the book of Daniel. We have in the book of Daniel the, the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is more directly in line with what we're talking about right now. The, the king in Babylon says, if you don't bow down to this giant uh, statue that I've created, then we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. That is clearly an issue for anybody that believes in God uh, because he was saying this statue is essentially God, you need to bow down and worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they do? They say, we can't do that. They get ratted out by some other people that don't like them, and they go before the king when he calls them, and, and they say, you know, you can do to us what you want, but we cannot bow down to the statue. We can only worship God. Now notice what are they doing? We recognize there's a punishment. We recognize you may throw us into the fiery furnace, and we accept that punishment. We're willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace rather than violate our conscience. Again, they don't pursue the violent revolution over Babylon. They instead say, we can't do this. We have to serve God rather than men. We have to worship God rather than bow down to the statue. And we are willing to accept as a matter of conscience being thrown into the fiery furnace because we can't do that which is wrong. Now, the reality, we all know the rest of the story, that Jesus shows up in the fiery furnace and saves them is absolutely irrelevant to what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is they had a moment where they had to decide. They choose, chose to do what God wanted them to do and not to do what the king wanted them to do because what the king was asking them to do was wrong. And they did it in a way that was civil disobedience. Fourth example. I want to look up this passage because Jesus says something here that's really important. Grab your Bibles and flip over to John chapter 18. This is um, The other three are important. But this is the most important of the four passages that we're going to look at. John chapter 18. So Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is at his trial, and he and Pilate, Pilate of course, represents the Roman government. And he is standing before Pilate, and what Jesus says here is so important for what we're talking about this morning, and making sure that we as the church understand our place within society and what is acceptable, acceptable to do as uh, um, when we're in situations where uh, the government is doing that which is wrong and what's not acceptable. In John chapter 18, let's start in verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people 
and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Here we go. Pay attention. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. First thing, Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. What does that mean? Does that mean that his kingdom has nothing to do with earth? No, obviously, if you go down just a couple of verses, in verse 37, he says, uh, you say that I am a king. The reason I was born and came into this world is to testify uh, to that truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Just a couple of verses later, he notes that he, he's come into the world in order to establish the kingdom. So him saying there that his kingdom is not of this world doesn't mean I don't have anything to do with what's going on on planet Earth. Now look at the last statement in 36. He says, but now my kingdom is from another place. What does that mean? It means his kingdom is from heaven. And he has come down to earth in order to bring the kingdom of heaven here to earth, the kingdom of God here to earth, in order that we might have the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing in the world. We talked in the sermon series last month about the idea that this world belongs to Satan and that he is currently under command of this world. And so if you want to use a war analogy, the analogy would be this. Jesus comes into the world, into enemy territory, and he is rescuing us who are POWs in order to try to free us and give us the opportunity for freedom through the power of what Jesus has done in the world. And so as we understand that, he's not saying his kingdom has nothing to do with this world, but rather he's saying his kingdom is from another place and he has come down into this world to bring it into the world. The more important thing, though, is what he says right there at the beginning of 36. Having said, my kingdom is not of this world, he then says, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. What is he saying there? This is, this is so important. Pay attention right now. What he is saying is, if my kingdom were of this world, in this moment when you guys are thinking about arresting me, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would get out a sword and they would take care of business. My servants would get out a sword and we would overthrow you guys. If my kingdom was of this world, we would win in this moment. But he says instead there that uh, if, my, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. This is not an afterthought. Like, we need to understand this idea of Jesus, of Jesus taking over politically, of taking over physically, of pulling out a sword and overthrowing Pilate and overthrowing the Jewish leaders. This isn't an afterthought. This isn't just like something that he said in passing. His entire ministry up to this point has, been, has had people pushing him in this direction. When he was born, you remember in the, in the Christmas story, all of Jerusalem is disturbed at the, at the, the word that a, a king of the Jews has been born. There's a political implication there. As he goes throughout his ministry, there are different points in the Gospels where the people come, and because he's done a miracle and fed them and other things, they come and they try to make him king by force. And he refuses. Again, political implications. Even coming up to this time, as he knows that he's going to go and die on the cross, um, there's, there are those that are pushing him, even his disciples, to go and take over. 
You go all the way back, or go all the way forward to after 40 days. He died, he's resurrected. 40 days later, he's getting ready to ascend to heaven because he's going to start the church. And even then, what do his disciples ask him? Are you going to establish the kingdom now? They're like, okay, now we've done all that. Now are you going to take over? And so this idea of Jesus pursuing political power is throughout his ministry. He is constantly getting pushed in that direction. And again and again and again and again, he says, no, my kingdom's not from this place. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight and take over. But that's not what I'm establishing. And it's so important that we understand as we go back to that first point about submitting to the governing authorities, it's so important that we understand that his kingdom is not of this world. He has a different agenda in mind. We're going to get into the agenda here in just a second. He has a different agenda in mind, which is why we are to submit to the governing authorities, because he's after something else. Let me use a contemporary example to try to, to, try to bring light to how difficult this teaching is, but the fact that Jesus is heading in a different direction. Um, right now in China, uh, there have been a number of churches that have been uh, raised to the ground. Uh, there's a number of pastors who have been put in prison. Um, you look at religious liberty in general and the Uyghur population in China, um, which is a Muslim pop- population, but their religious li- liberty has completely been wiped out. And what America is currently calling what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs is genocide. And that could well happen to the church in China as well. I want you to imagine for a second, I have the opportunity to go to China, and I have the opportunity to preach to an underground church. Everything within me, everything within me, knowing the communistic, atheistic government that they have and what they have done to the church, as well as just people in general, Everything within me, if I was preaching in that moment, would want to say to them, rebel against the government. Take up arms and overthrow the communist government of China. You guys need to rise up and destroy them. Every part of me would want to be able to preach that. But I can't. I couldn't. Because the clear teaching of Scripture, even in that situation, it is to submit to the governing authorities. That's hard. But the reason that we are called to do that goes directly to what Jesus says in John chapter 18, which is that his kingdom is different than business as usual. And we need to understand that, and that's why I want to get into what exactly it says, uh, or what exactly the point is that we have going forward. Now, before I do that, I want to make a brief point. As I'm talking about this, that the church is not called a violent revolution, just for clarification, so no one misunderstands, I'm not arguing for pacifism. I'm not saying, let's go back to World War II, when, uh, when there was a need to overthrow, for as a country, a need to go and overthrow Nazi Germany. Um, I'm not saying that we as Christians cannot go and fight in wars where one, our nation is fighting against another nation. I'm not arguing for pacifism. That's a different argument. I believe in just war when that kind of a situation happens. What I'm arguing this morning, what the Bible clearly teaches, for the reason that we're going to get into in just a second, is that as the church, we have no right, and we do not have any call to go forward and to pursue violent revolution against our government 
when instead we have been called to do something else. What is that something else? Let's get into it. Third point is this. Why does the Bible give us these challenging teachings? Why does the Bible give us these challenging teachings? And the answer is this. Our goal is not the accumulation of earthly power. Our goal is not the accumulation of earthly power. Our goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God. Our goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God. It is so important when in anything in life that you keep your eyes on the goal and you stay focused on that which matters most. If you go to college, we all know people who go to college and, and they get caught up in how much fun they can have and they fail their classes. They forgot what the goal was. The goal was not to have fun. The goal was to pass your classes. Let's imagine there's a basketball team and, and they decide our goal is to pass the ball as many times as possible. Well, you know, sometimes passing is part of winning the game, but if your goal is passing as much as possible and not scoring as many points as possible, there's a really good chance you're going to lose the game because the point is that you want to score as many points, not just pass the ball as much as possible. We, as the church, and this is going all the way back to the Middle Ages and all the way back to the Roman Empire and all the way up to today, the church has continually had the temptation that Jesus had. Remember, in, in the temptation, uh, one of the temptations that Satan brought against him is, I will give you power over all the kingdoms of the world. And that was tempting, because who wouldn't want power over all the kingdoms of the world? The problem is, and the reason Jesus said no, is that's not what Jesus was here about. And for, for the church going all the way back 2,000 years, there has been a perennial temptation for us to want to accumulate earthly power and feel like somehow if we accumulate earthly power, then we've really accomplished something. We've really done something big because we got earthly power. And that was never the point. It was never the point to accumulate earthly power. It's always been about the expansion of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? The expansion of the kingdom of God means telling people about Jesus so they can come to a saving and growing relationship with Him and going out and sharing with other people the good news about the kingdom so that other people can know, and sharing the good news about Christ everywhere that we have the opportunity to do that. Our goal is to go forward and to be able to share about Jesus, to see the kingdom of God expand in as great a way as possible, because we believe, this is important, we believe the greatest thing in the world today is not the political power of China or even the political power of America. We believe the greatest thing in the world today is the kingdom of God. That's the greatest thing in the world today. And the most important thing we can do is not to accumulate power in China or accumulate power in America. The greatest thing we can do is to see lives of many people come to know Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and go out and tell other people so that their soul and their heart can be transformed into a new creation that makes a difference in this world. That is our goal. Our focus is on the expansion of the kingdom of God, not the accumulation of earthly power. We have to stay focused on what we are called to do. Now, does that mean we shouldn't vote? No, we should vote. We should be good citizens. Does that mean that Christians shouldn't run for political office? No, if you feel led to do that, you should run for political office. But in everything that we do, we need to stay focused on the fact that our goal is never about how much power can I get. How much can I accumulate in power? Our goal is always supposed to be about the expansion of the kingdom of God. Let's talk about um, the book of Acts for a second. Um, is the book of Acts the story of an of incredible failure 
Or is the book of Acts a story of incredible success? Well, it depends on your goal. If the book of Acts, or if the goal, I'm sorry, is the accumulation of earthly power, then the book of Acts is a story of abysmal failure. Abysmal failure. The disciples go out, they keep getting arrested, they never get in charge of anything, they get run out of here and run out of there, and they go all these places, and they never accumulate any earthly power. They never get in charge of anything. They're never in charge of the Roman Empire. They fail and fail and fail if the goal is for them to accumulate earthly power. If, on the other hand, if the goal is the expansion of the kingdom of God, then the book of Acts is the story of one of the greatest successes in history. Because even though the the disciples get run out of towns, and even though they end up in jail, they go from place to place to place sharing Jesus, and the kingdom of God catches fire. And all throughout the Mediterranean, people come to know Jesus, their lives are transformed by Jesus, and the church expands in a way that is almost unrivaled in the history of the last 2,000 years. And here's the even worse part. The reality of the book of Acts is this. It was actually, in some ways, the political oppression that the disciples were under that fueled the expansion of the kingdom of God. How? Because as the disciples were in one place, when persecution came upon them, they had to expand out. They had to go out in all different directions in order to get away from that persecution. And what happened because of them going out in that way? The kingdom of God was preached in all these new places. Jesus was proclaimed in all these new places. The persecution, the lack of political power, was not in the end an impediment to the kingdom of God. It actually helped fuel the kingdom of God. Let me give a second example. I shared this the other day. When you look at Jesus choosing his disciples, Jesus chose two disciples that would have hated each other. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot, to be a zealot was part of a political party of that day like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that that advocated for the violent overthrow of the Roman government. Matthew the tax collector, on the other hand, was a Jewish person who was working with the uh, Roman authorities in order to collect taxes. So these two people would have been at the opposite ends of the political spectrum. And Simon would have almost certainly hated Matthew, and Matthew would have almost certainly hated Simon. And yet, as Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are both called into the twelve disciples by Christ, why would he do that? Why would he choose people at two ends of the political spectrum? Because when Jesus calls us, he doesn't say, now go ahead and bring all your baggage with you. If you're a Republican, bring that with you. If you're a Democrat, bring that with you. If you're a Libertarian, bring that with you. If you're a Green Party, bring that with you. No matter what party you come from, no matter what life experiences you have, no matter what exactly baggage you bring, we are all called, no matter which end, we are called to lay behind our baggage and come forward because Jesus is doing a new thing in our lives. And we are called, no matter where we come from, to lay it aside, and as we lay it aside, we instead say, it's no longer about what I believe, it's no longer about what I believed in the past, I now believe that this is the truth. And I'm going to live this out, even when, like we've been talking about this morning, even when it conflicts with what I wish was true, even when it conflicts with what I want to be true, I'm choosing Jesus, and I'm going to pursue Him 
And that means I have to leave behind all the stuff I had before because now I believe what is the most true thing in the world is what Jesus said. When I die someday, when, when you die someday, what's going to matter? Is God going to ask, were you a Democrat? Were, were you a Republican? Were you a Libertarian? Were you a Green Party? Is God going to ask, were, were you from America? Were you from Europe? Were you from China? Were, were you from Russia? Is God going to ask, were you white? Were you black? Were you Asian? Were you Native American? God's going to ask you this. What did you do with my son in, my, in your heart? And what did you do for his kingdom? That's it. Our goal, our focus cannot be the pettiness of the accumulation of earthly power. We have to stay focused on the expansion of the kingdom of God. Because the only thing that ultimately matters is people knowing Jesus. God, forgive us for running after secondary things. God, forgive us for believing that the accumulation of something as shallow as earthly power is worthy of our lives' focus. And help us, Father, to stay focused on knowing Jesus better ourselves. and on seeing the kingdom of God expand. At the end of the day, it's the only thing that matters. I pray in Jesus' name.